Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Thoughtington Post Art Dies in Darkness <laughs> podcast. Hi, Pshemek. How are you? Hey, Amir. <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Just broadcasting from my Sunset Park studio. I will still not uh, completely reveal my geolocation. <laughs> what just, about you? Uh, just keep in mind that Amir is uh, close to a... Uh, a high uh, profile, no longer fugitive. <laughs> mm-hmm. And a uh, halal uh, poultry butcher. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read about them in the WAPO. Um, I'm good. I'm just uh, at home here in rural Poland. I will also not reveal my exact location because I don't need, uh, you know, panty throwing stalkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> have you but, uh, have you early voted? <laughs> have you yeah. have you sponsored an american child to early vote <laughs> i've uh can <laughs> done mass voter fraud already <laughs> yeah <laughs> well uh, i just really hope i don't have any biden moments you know, on this podcast <laughs> this week are you we will, we, yeah we will mute each other's uh microphones this time if uh <laughs> so there's no uh talking over each other yeah exactly uh are you an artist for Biden? Uh, I am an artist, period. And I, God, yeah, I'm not one of those anti-voters. Let me just uh, say that. that You're is also real... not nasally uh, nor vocal fried. So <laughs> thank you. It's funny. I was uh, I, I was having phone therapy uh, on, uh, what day is it today? Let's say, oh, on Monday. Uh, I was telling her about about the podcast and how like the first couple of episodes I would play them back and I just couldn't he couldn't listen to the sound of my voice and then the third episode something changed and then I told her well I was just so amazed at the fact that I like all this time I thought I sounded like a faggot like that (laughs) I have a gay voice oh my god you might think that I have a gay voice but like all that matters that I don't think that I have a gay voice so that that's a recent development in my life i think you sound really great on the podcast i've gotten lots of great feedback uh from our fans thank you we should do a howard stern uh reenactment of that scene from the movie with the that female listener that he has sitting on that huge subwoofer (laughs) as he flutters his lips you remember that I haven't seen it. I'm so embarrassed. But, what an amazing movie. But uh, I stand, so I should watch it. Um, my but, people. <laughs> mine, too. Uh, but, I, don't uh, think any, I don't think anyone in your village has his curls. <laughs> his dense curls. No, there is. There's that woman that looks like Rhea Perlman. I've shown you a photo. <laughs> you <mean> Margaret Atwood? <laughs> <laughs> the local handmaid? <laughs> no, they're, they're interchangeable. They're, I'm sorry. No, like in maybe not so much in the village, but when I go to the uh, the giant jacuzzi at the aqua park in Wrocław, there are a lot of old men that uh, look like caricatures. If you get my drift, (laughs) (laughs) with their heads bobbing out of the water. Yeah, is that a natural springs or just uh, Uh, it's just like it's it's man made. It's a human made. It's a city complex oh, wow. but of of course probably shut down now because of coronavirus again I bet, yeah i thought chlorine uh, kills that shit 
They should just blast uh, chlorine in the air, uh, you know, like the bleach injections. Yeah, totally. Uh, so just to tell our listeners, uh, when Pshemek and I uh, were doing the residency in Tuscany this past February, when uh, outbreaks were sort of popping up everywhere, uh, for my birthday, we went to, uh, it was an hour and a half drive in Tuscany. We went to A treacherous like an, drive. <laughs> a, oh my God. We went to an, like Natural Springs. What was it called? I forget something i don't remember damn anyways there was like a two for one for valentine's my birthday is february 15th so we took advantage of that and we took the residency's like olden yellow jeep wrangler uh manual shift stick which i tried driving but i just couldn't almost uh, Um, rolled back into the house almost (laughs) (laughs) uh well it's really hilly there it's really difficult. Uh, anyways, we drove there for an hour and a half, had the most amazing day, but little did we know that our clothes would be forever tainted by the smell of sulfur. And I still have some items of clothing that I just, they smell like hell, like rotten eggs. Oh, it's, it's insane. It's, uh, yeah, they smell like rotten eggs and some other kind of vague uh, periodic table of elements smell. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. Uh, <laughs> but we had the nicest time. It was so beautiful yeah, it was, there. It was amazing. And there was a uh, there were like those ambiguous gays there that were kind of like uh circling us like sharks that I tried to make sexy mm-hmm. eyes at to no avail. And now I'm Instagram <laughs> friends with one of them. <laughs> oh, true. Isn't that what one of the guys that look like it looks like the father from Call Me by Your Name? <laughs> Pretty sure. Um uh yeah and then i lost my wallet and it was like a two-week ordeal oh, to get it back. Right. sorry oh my God. sorry you to ruin re- your birthday oh come on you made me the, the most delicious cake which i woke up to that same morning mm, thank you but like it took you what an hour into the drive back home to realize that you had left your wallet there yeah i that threw it away so- in the in the into the laundry it was in the pocket of the robe and it went into the laundry and i got shipped away to some like third-party facility yeah uh yeah let me just say that they were not just very friendly but they're actually kind of bent over backwards to try to uh, retrieve the wallet like i can't imagine that helpfulness happening either in germany or in uh just ie our last episode in france yeah <laughs> pas possible <laughs> It did feel like a a North American customer service moment, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, Thanks, uh, America. Imperialism works. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Before we... Well, speaking of America, and before we go any further, I just wanted to uh, do a little shout out to a very special birthday girl. Uh, I just want to wish a happy birthday to uh, walking human assemblage Kim Kardashian West. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the big four O. it's the big four O, and uh you know there's lots of think pieces you can read on that but all i want to say is we're wishing you a happy birthday and knock yourself out with that new james terrell piece absolutely happy birthday kate <laughs> okay um, and then also sorry there's two corrections i have to make from last episode because multiple people have pointed out that we don't have a fact checker well, guess what? We're a podcast. Yeah, exactly. So Johnny Resnick, or Zeznik, as our people would say, 
uh, was the lead singer of Goo Goo Dolls, not Rob Thomas. Mm-hmm. And second of all, I know that Hungarians are a Uralic people and not Slavs, but my mind was in the gutter <laughs> and uh, sorry, the gay cinema gutter. And uh, in that world, they're all slutty Slavs. So just what the hell to made clarify, that fact checking correction? Uh, my brother, Bart. <laughs> oh, OK. Brother shout of the out, pod. Hey, Bart. Shout out, hey, Bart. Shout out to brother of the pod. He's, he's a uh, he's an essential worker, a teacher on the front lines, right? He is exactly. So shout out to the essential workers. We appreciate you and salute you. Yes, we do. We're uh, maybe we can end the uh, recording with a uh, minute of clapping, uh, <laughs> a, a standing ovation, a minute of clapping for them, and also for Anna Delvey, who has been released on parole. <laughs> oh yes, the lady in the jowls. Our people. Actually, our people? Isn't she German or is she Russian? She's Russian, but uh, of that string, we're not related to. Yeah. I recognize that scowl from like miles away. (laughs) (laughs) I just love Um, that she scammed people and was like, I'm German. (laughs) Well, you know, they say her only problem was that she got caught because like, show me a single person in this profession who's not a scammer who just hasn't gotten caught yet yeah exactly basically um well i have uh, i just want to express some humility for a moment we do get catty from now and uh, then from time to time but i just want to say that i had one of the most amazing museum experiences this past week um i went to the whitney to finally see the uh, vida americana show the mexican muralist show um it so it focuses heavily on the three like marquee mexican muralists rivera sicaris uh, which i'm probably mispronouncing his name and uh orozco and sort of the cultural exchange after the mexican revolution between those mexican artists who were um you know fighting for like raising social awareness uh through their big murals and um sort of social art and the american artists such as like pollock and Gustin and all these other big guys and it's just a beautiful show really exhaustive um i think like organized by barbara haskell at the whitney museum and i just had the most amazing time there and yeah it's just shout out to the whitney museum for like finally mounting a truly like impressive show after all this time i mean after they moved downtown that is so that's my little tip for the uh for the listeners and that has been Amir's favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will just say, though, like when you look at like, you know, the political conditions and stuff that gave birth um, back in the, like the 1910s and 20s to art as like, you know, a vehicle for raising historical and social awareness. Um, like what I found amazing about the show was just seeing how like they deployed these like expressionist techniques out of like a sense of urgency almost and determination. Uh, and you know that I'm a big fan of German expressionism in that whole era. And it's just really fascinating to see how like that sort of phenomenon existed in different manifestations on two parts of the, of the globe. And you kind of then like (laughs) fast forward to our age of like you know mind-numbing material wealth and like vapidness and it just makes you like makes you ask some questions about the vitality of art like what's what's yeah. what it has to offer is like a social agent of change i guess i don't know what your thoughts on the matter are uh 
I'm going to, you know, regroup my thoughts and get back to that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think, uh, you know, we're living in a difficult time now because, you know, in the last five years, especially like so much has been brought to the forefront, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, about the inequalities in our society, which uh, have always been happening, but apparently some people have just realized that in the last five years yeah, or the last four years specifically, you know, with the Trump administration. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like the art world has, well, not everyone in the art world, obviously, but uh, maybe the art world as a whole has been slow to kind of own up to the task of being an agent of social change. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think that when we talk about kind of the social inequalities that are reflected in the art world, uh, there's, I think there's just more that can be done than, I don't know, like, you know, a different institution doing a kind of the bare minimum or something or having a, a resistance reading room at the new museum. It's, it's interesting because those three artists, like at least I know for a fact that two of them, uh, Diego Rivera and uh, I think Orozco, both of them came from like, you know, well-to-do families. They were well off clearly. And they were on the like Caucasian end of the South American spectrum, you know? Yeah, so I'd they, say they, as they, many South American artists are, they're generally white passing because they're from wealthy families and sort of who... Mm-hmm who has afforded that privilege to be an artist in a, you know, uh, a context that's kind of down the socioeconomic ladder. Right. And it's, it's interesting because like in the 20s and the 30s, uh, you had those artists who obviously came from wealthy backgrounds, but I feel like the stakes for like, you know, perpetuating the like family's wealth and stuff like that, they were much lower. So I guess the you know, the mission of those artists were kind of not in cahoots with that perpetuation of wealth or generating more wealth. So in my opinion, I guess it just gives a little more vitality and punch to their social activism. Uh, I'm just like, you know, fast forward, fast forwarding to, uh, to our age and like thinking of, you know, artists who choose to go into this profession as means to either like generate wealth or essentially perpetuate the family's wealth and you see like you know the chloe wises of the world with their portraits of like other well-to-do art dealers and um you know heiresses of wealth criminal families and stuff like that (laughs) and you're just like i think that that in a sense kind of disarms the like social awareness bomb or just takes takes away the punch from any like any social like um vitality that could be in the work that's my opinion yeah or maybe like you know even writing the coattails of previous like hardships or uh difficult times social times like you know the gay figuration and stuff like that like i feel like in 2020 that's clearly like benefiting from the cachet of like previous eras where lgbtq artists actually (laughs) were struggling or yeah. discriminated against but like in 2020 you have these like um like uh you know important like residencies to put in your cv where it's all about a getaway that's 
like all about like getting as many blowjobs as you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, when there's a, you know, there's a white milk toast, as Pooja wrote last episode, <laughs> artists uh, who make pastiche work. Uh, you know, that looks like it's from, you know, the peak of the AIDS era of the 1980s when that's not an experience they had, uh, you know, because that's generally their artists our age or younger. And of course, you know, when you and I like we're the same age, we were coming of age. That was something still happening, uh, in society. Not that it isn't now, but you know the mid. What was it like coming out for you? What oh, I'll get experience? to that. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but the mid '90s, that's when you know, like these major advances in antiretrovirals were made, mm-hmm. and then uh, fast forward to now, where you know how long has PrEP been on the market? Like at least five years or so, and that's a world of difference. Like that's not. The experience of people in the 80s and 90s that are older than us that, you know, it's like all their friends were dying. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't imagine that happening. And that clearly was not, you know, what we experienced. Mm-hmm. And I think most other people, especially, you know, in a North American context, didn't experience. Uh, so I think it's a bit disingenuous to kind of be... <sighs> It's not even appropriating. It's like what I said, pastiche, making this work that's like of that era, like this longing for it or something. It just doesn't ring true. And I think that's where, you know, this kind of work loses weight. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I mean, uh, for me, it's a, yeah. No, no, go ahead. I mean, it's kind of a conundrum for me because some of the work, and I'm not going to name names. I'm just thinking about some like uh, gay figuration artists. I honestly love the work. I would really appreciate if the pretense would be dropped. Like, I don't need to read, you know, press texts about the the fragile queer body, et cetera, et cetera, coming from, like, a well-to-do white kid who's, like, 25 or 26 when I'm clearly, like, looking at just a, you know, a beautifully, like, just on a formal level, like, a beautiful painting I don't need to hear about your like made up woes about like persecution that you've never experienced or whatever. Yeah. Um, be- and there's because obviously a market for that. No, exactly. And there's obviously people being persecuted to this day, you know, in all corners of the globe, including North America. But as you said, if you're, you know, a upper middle class white artist, that most likely was not your experience, uh, especially if you, are a coastal elite. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, but uh, my coming out experience was very positive. Uh, I always kind of assume the worst because, uh, you know, like we immigrated from Poland, came to Canada, and like what gay people would my parents know, you know, in their life in Winnipeg or in Poland before that? Uh, it's different if like, you grew up in the West Village and you're, you know, you're, or even like Mariah Carey, she talks about these, this gay couple that was like inviting them over for Christmas when she was a kid. Like, mm-hmm. that's not, that's not like the experience most people had in, uh, you know, like the seventies, eighties, nineties. Um, but my parents, uh, like I told my brother first, everything was fine. Then I told my parents a couple of years later, like when I was 21, I guess. 
and uh everything's been fine so i'm very fortunate and mm -hmm. i think you know for parents that aren't accepting of their kids uh whether you know they're lgbt or anything else it's kind of like get a life you're a fucking tool if you don't mm -hmm. accept your kids yeah because they're the kids you have and you have to love them and they love you too so yeah I will so the the I will say though the level of sort of fanfare surrounding the whole like ceremonial part about you know the coming out and American culture, et cetera, et cetera. That's something that like growing up in Israel I didn't experience. I feel like our non-linear stories of coming out are vastly different than you know what culture has you expecting here in America. Um, yeah. Like my coming out was non-linear. But, uh, and I, well, I guess, well, my dad approached me at some point and was like, Hey, so like, I wanted to talk to you about like this or that. And I like have been noticing this and that. And maybe like, I don't know, he was just really like coy about it and I just didn't know how to approach it. But I ended up asking me like straightforwardly if I was gay and I told him yes. And he then took my mother to a, like a coffee or something like that and told her, but she had known all along because like, you're my fucking mother. How could you not know that your son and, is gay? And she found like, your Madonna CDs. Yeah, exactly. My <laughs> my uh, house remixes of a uh, blonde ambition. Uh, not. Um, that to you know, me is the craziest thing. Like to have gay children and to have claimed to have not gotten an inkling that they are gay. Like what, what level of blindness are you living Well, in? my mom asked me, she asked me and I was reading, you know, uh, a broadsheet newspaper and I covered my face with it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, okay, your child is 21 and has never had a girlfriend. Like, yeah. And uh, I would say I'm a catch, even though I've been single for years, and I'm single and ready to mingle, listeners, so send your offers my way. But, Boys, uh, you should. P's a catch. <laughs> Thanks. Amir's uh, married, so hands off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say, though, uh, after I came out, my mother took it upon herself to... She essentially turned into a... Oh, sorry. There's some honking here. Oh, yeah. Um, I can I can hear it here all the way in Poland. <laughs> there's some sun, Sunset Park road rage. Oh, my God. Um. So when I came out, my mother took it upon herself to, like, uh, announce it to everyone in the family. She essentially became, like, Michael's mom from Queer as <laughs> Fall. <laughs> and she even founded the local PFLAG chapter. Really? That's amazing. Yes. A true Yenta. <laughs> a true yenta and she like one of oh i guess first like pride in ranana my hometown she like ransacked all the like the merch booths and like handed me a bag just a sack full of like rainbow colored merch oh my god <laughs> yeah that's amazing that would be a good cosplay at totally. some point yeah um i guess like moving on to our, our next segment our like listener question bag is engorged oh yeah <laughs> no, it's a, it's an engorged member <laughs> <laughs> segueing perfectly from the gay theme uh we got a lot of listener questions and i think uh, maybe we can answer some or try to answer some yes okay so all right should we start from the bottom or the top of our list we made <laughs> um let's just randomly pick them there's so many good ones in there okay so, uh, let's see. 
Uh, my students want to know if fashion is art. Please help. And that's courtesy of Beata. Uh, that's Polish Beata, not the inferior German Beata. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so my students want to know if fashion is art. Please help. My short answer is no. What yeah, is I agree. Your take? N- yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, just just one word. No. Uh, I think we can very easily make a distinction between art being non-functional objects created, uh, mm-hmm. you know, by an artist and you know, other things that have creativity and a sense of aesthetics, you know, embedded into them. Uh, I think it's very fair just to classify those as design. So, you know, whether it's like cutlery or dishes or clothing or industrial design, like, yes, it takes a, a creative mind to come up with those objects, but they do serve a purpose uh whereas i think art is really something that's meant to be enjoyed on an aesthetic level and you know in recent decades or centuries uh also on a more intellectual level mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean that you know like a you know a very complicated alexander mcqueen gown isn't uh you know amazing and it's technicality or it's not theatrical or it's not uh you know something to marvel at but it's not art and i think people need to also get over this hierarchy of art you know kind of like celebrities being obsessed with being artists like you're already an actor like i would love to be an actor i would love to have this you know uh kind of objective skill where you kind of suspend people in disbelief or I would love to be a craftsperson that, you know, can make something really amazingly well. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I do think that fashion is art in the sense that art has become a luxury commodity and is unattainable. And it seems to me like fashion, even though in like 2020, it is trying to sort of play the the social uh, social awareness sort of movement yet staying really unattainable and so playing this duality of like we're striving to like change uh conducts of business and make it more sustainable and like environmentally friendly friendly and stuff like that but it's actually still a luxury commodity and in that sense just logically speaking like yes fashion is art um, and I also do see the kind of bleeding over between the two the two realms. Um, I'm thinking of um, what's what did Ryan Serhat Serhat what's his name from <laughs> Million Dollar Listing would say his like motto was uh, expansion always in all ways. Yeah, I feel I feel like just the bleeding over between fashion and art is just the natural and logical next step in the like market evolution. So like, yeah, sure, which we've fashion we've, is art, <laughs> but fashion is not art. So. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's that's a decisive no from both of that's us. That's a no. Yeah. All right, next question because we have so many. Okay. Uh, okay, Amir, you pick one. Um, so I would love to hear your take on the relationship between art and humor, 
brought to us by Anders Carno on Instagram. That's yes. their handle. Um, what would you say is the relationship between art and humor? Like I, I personally am um my attraction is to art that's the utter opposite of humoristic or funny. Um I also feel like you know so much work is put into a a work of art technically speaking or ideally that i feel like it kind of um i don't know makes makes it just naturally like not funny because like humor is something that's supposed to come instinctually out of you and so putting so much thought into something like laboring over a punchline or something like that or like a funny haha moment is something that i don't think yeah. could really exist in, in art but maybe you have some like art examples that i'm not thinking of at the moment <laughs> Okay, well, I think uh, we just have to make very make it very clear that it's actually not that easy to be funny, which is why most of the art world meme accounts suck. Like, yeah, I don't blame them. I mean, have you tried making a meme, listener? It's not easy. So you know, like yeah. the Jerry Gagosians of the world, when they're like cranking out memes, like they're not funny uh, because it's just it's hard to be funny. And yeah. so, you know, that's usually... It also punches, it also like punches down or like laterally at this point. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Well, also, like how many, how many jokes can you make about rich people while at the same time, like seeking out their benefit and like wanting to work with them? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I saw a funny show at the Winnipeg Art Gallery in like 2008 or something or 2007 like it was years ago and it was a show about humor and there actually were funny works in it um i can't remember any of the artists or anything but i remember there was like a there was a video work that was a stand-up comedy stage with a mic you could go up to it and there was a video playing and a laugh track and it actually it was kind of like comedian karaoke or something mm -hmm. that was funny um you know, but I also think that stand-up comedians, that's an art form in and of itself. So, like, for artists to try to dabble in something that's an art form completely, you know, removed several degrees of separation from them, it's a little, uh, yeah. it's a little pretentious. There's, there's also a, a show right now at the Museum of Modern Art in Warsaw that's all about humor. I haven't seen it yet, so can't comment, but hopefully I can make it down there before it closes and then... Uh, give my final take uh and then also i just want to say uh i can think of a funny artist friend of the pod divya mera her inflatables are hilarious oh and true other work she's done like when we were in toronto and saw the uh orientalism inflatable mm -hmm. uh you know that was a a capital lol for me so right. yeah so there are funny just... artists out there but yeah, I'm just thinking from the point of view of the collector, even like just asking myself if I would want to live with a a joke captured on a surface of a canvas, like <laughs> hanging in my living room. I'm not sure I could like enjoy that joke or the humor yeah. um, every day, but um, yeah, like yeah. we don't need uh, memes on paintings. Okay. Oh next. my God! Don't get me started. What's the? I'm not even gonna name that we're, artist. No, we're not. We're not. Name, no, we're not naming names. Oh um, God! What an eye roll. Okay. So <laughs> cringe, oh boomer humor. Basically, I th honestly I think humor in art is the the laugh you get at the expense of things rather than the intention put into the art itself. 
Yeah, no, definitely. I will say that. So take a take a scroll on uh, on Jerry Saltz's feed, Instagram, Twitter, if he hasn't blocked <laughs> you or if you haven't blocked him for a good chuckle. <laughs> yeah, if you want to see like a MSNBC meltdown spiral uh, live on Twitter, <laughs> just follow Jerry Saltz. Yeah, and otherwise, <laughs> just take his advice and just walk. Don't talk. okay so uh cutie of the pod colin self asks what are the festive season musts in berlin what are the festive season i'm gonna i'm gonna defer to you a berlin adjacent person (laughs) geographically speaking and a and a (laughs) non-jew uh okay well christmas markets the i like the trashy one at alexander plots because is that the one you have to pay to get in i don't think you have to pay uh it has shrunken down in size because they're constructing more things around there now but Mm -hmm. is that where the hard candy gym used to be the hard candy gym was at (laughs) weinmeister strasse (laughs) r.i.p hard candy gym like madonna can't catch a break that was Um, short-lived that was and you know what if they allowed men in that gym i would have signed up i would have done the uh what it was you know, frauen's only yes really it was yes it, it took over the space of this like frauen gym and then there was actually the first hard candy was in Dahlem or charlottenburg uh where there used to be like an american military base burger king mm-hmm. <laughs> and the hard candy moved in there it was uh clay alley or clay alley and uh, I think that one was co-ed, but I'm not commuting across town together. That, that is so odd to me, like a gender segregation in any institution in Berlin. Like I, I have horrid memories from the uh, steam room at the Soho House in Berlin <laughs> of just women who were just a touch too comfortable co-edding that moment. <laughs> uh, so, okay. But, you know, Amir, remember we love the Krakauer sausage. Oh my god, it's my it's, favorite. Yeah, it's the one good sausage in Germany and of course it's Polish. Yeah, uh, shocker. Shocker. Uh that and I do like Glühwein, which is a mulled wine, like a a warm spicy wine. Mm-hmm. And actually last uh this past weekend when I was in Gilona Gura for the Spaniel, uh I had mulled beer for the first time. Ooh. It was amazing. It was a a spicy warm beer. Mhm and uh other festive season musts in berlin i feel like food wise there's nothing to write home about they're all about their stolen uh those like hard shell fruit cakes essentially <laughs> that they pass on from year to year proudly so they just eat them like you know if the cakes uh like you bake it i guess in 2020 and it lasts you through like 2024 <laughs> And uh, I guess you're supposed to like dunk it in tea or something like that. It's just a little too oh. citrusy for my. No, it's flavor. all about uh, as a friend of the pod, Ika taught me slathering it with butter. It's good. Uh, sorry, when I so <laughs> I'm gonna do some defaming now. When <laughs> when I had my <laughs> office job in Berlin, we had a, a catering guy who would cook for the whole uh, for the whole office twice a week, and he would just just make the exact same dish week after week i.e 
uh, ratatouille <laughs> with some like super hard one of those sourdough. It's not even sourdough. It's those like pumpernickel and it like glistens and oozes like it secretes like whatever fluids they like used to bake them in. And it's just one of my most like traumatizing memories. I cannot touch ratatouille ever since my experience in Berlin. So what I guess what, is, what I'm trying to say is that food in Germany is what I would refer to when I was living there as impolite food <laughs> because it's not so easy on the eye or on the stomach. But I don't know. Maybe it just gets lost in translation for me. But anyway, hit up a Christmas market. They're fun. But actually, I think they're mostly canceled because of COVID-19. Okay, next. <laughs> Um, okay, next question, uh, coming to us from Ben. Um, okay, so what do I do with my life? Like, should someone actually try to work and build a career in the art world or like, am I fucked? That's courtesy <laughs> of Ben. Uh, I would love to know what Ben is, uh, what stage in his life he is right now. Is he in school? Is he uh, trying to make it big in also what country? I um, believe he lives what in would Germany. Be your recommendation for someone trying to make it in the arts? I feel like it's just too big to tackle. Almost yeah. you have to. I feel like we need a whole panel. You know, I'm on just this. trying to reflect on my own personal history, and it feels like inertia at this yeah. point. Uh, if I could like turn back time and give myself some sage advice, I would obviously steer myself away from this profession. But at the same time, there's. Um, I don't know, the, the emotional, I guess, satisfaction and benefits are pretty tremendous. And if you can get it to work, i.e. like either selling independently out of your studio or getting yourself into opportunities that kind of, um, you know, incrementally up your clout, I would totally recommend that. One thing nobody even bothered telling us in school or I think any school outside of North America where, you know, you put in all this money in exchange for opportunities Outside of America, no one tells you that all these opportunities will have to be completely self, um, you know, self-made, and no one's really waiting for you out there. Like, there's no like constant like a mentality of scouting for recent graduates or something like that. It's you perfectly have to be self-made, and it's a shit show. So I think uh, the advice I would offer to Ben is. You should go for your goals and try to, you know, follow your dreams because I think it's stupid when you have one life and one shot at things to not try. I think the worst thing you can do is not try in life or, uh, you know, follow your goals. But uh, you should be prepared that if things don't go well, you know, you're not 40 years old and don't have a job and don't know how to do anything. Yeah. So... Maybe that means as you're still in your mid-20s, uh, you know, doing another degree or learning tangible skills or things you could apply to another field or even something within the arts uh, that's maybe more like admin-related if that's something you would enjoy doing. But I think you should, you know, go reach for gold, but also just be prepared if things don't go well. And I'll just remind our listeners, uh, just going back to what I was saying about the uh, the Mexican artists at the beginning of the recording, is that, let's just face it, there's a lot of dishonesty out there about the 
you know, the condition of the upbringing of most artists in the field, and you essentially need money to make money, and that applies to every other field in our lives and in our capitalist societies, and it just takes much more work if you don't come from money, and if you don't have that material comfort to just allow you to keep experimenting and make uh, mistakes. Um, so yeah, I think my advice sort of echoes Shemek's advice, which is to just always either have a job or have a job ready to, you know, start in case things go south for you. That's, yeah. that's my take. All right. Uh, so let's see. Uh, Yo Popoff Sun asks, does everyone hate Courtney? Um, (laughs) what's to hate about Courtney? I love Courtney. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's just like her family hates her because she's kind of the most sane one that has had the least invasive surgery. Yeah, exactly. She's she's like the Tiffany Trump of the Kardashian clan. (laughs) (laughs) Tiffany, our queen. (laughs) Our LGBTQ queen. LGBTQIIA plus asterisk, as she, she tried to say. <laughs> somebody um, somebody <laughs> sent me a grinder profile screenshot the other day. Uh, the user profile name was vote, V-O, capital T, <laughs> under <laughs> lowercase e. So, uh, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the spirit of our times. Uh, okay, we're going to rapid fire through a couple of these. Okay, can I be your muse, asks Boyism. Who's asking? Uh, well, <laughs> Who's Boyism? <laughs> uh, okay, well, Boyism, I've been trying to flirt with you for the last 10 years. So, yes. Next. Shemek, hold okay. on. If, if Boyism were to become your muse, would you abstract the body in, <laughs> in, playground, uh, in playground shapes? I, I would abstract his queer body and put him behind bars in a facade painting. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> okay. All right. And then, uh, yeah. Okay. So then, uh, Paul or Pavel asks Depuri's man question mark. <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? I think he's uh, referring to S- uh, Simone yeah. Depuri, uh noted auctioneer and uh, At, private dealer. As seen on Emily in Paris. Yes, exactly. And as seen on Work of Art seasons one and two, which we will address in a future episode. Mm-hmm. Didn't he have uh, a uh, a, uh, um, a cameo on um, uh, Devil Wears Prada? Could have totally fit there. Oh, he, I don't think he did, but he would have fit yeah. there, but he was, I'm glad he was in Emily in Paris. Uh, I've met him before. He's very charming and handsome and tall. Mm-hmm. So you go girl. Is he really French uh, or what's his, uh, is that just, uh, uh I, an effect? I think he's Swiss. Oh, no, see. no. I think he's like Swiss French. Okay. Uh, I know, I know, okay. I know the Swiss French from personal experience. <laughs> I've dated one. <laughs> Oh, you know who's Swiss French? Uh, handsome hunk of the pod, Kareem. He's Swiss French. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, then we have another a uh, little bit of a crude question. Do tops or bottoms make better art, courtesy of no duh? <laughs> um, I'm going to say tops make better art. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think uh, from, let's see, artists who I know who I can profile. Yes, tops. Yeah, that's a definite for tops. Yeah, okay. And you don't need to know anything else. So uh, <laughs> onwards. Uh, okay, who's going to win the Hugo Boss Prize and who do you want to win? That's from Jan. Uh, honestly, when he submitted that question, I had to look up the uh, the nominees. I Again, probably due to my own ignorance, I only recognized uh, one name. So my answer to that would be... Uh, I don't care, but I don't know. Yeah, uh, I recognize a couple of names, but again, I didn't even know it was happening. I just assumed everything was canceled because of coronavirus. Um, it's one of these things on the arts calendar that I could not place in a part of the year if you held a gun to my head. Yeah. Uh, I know it's a big prize because it's, you know, the Guggenheim Foundation and... Uh, a lame brand like Hugo Boss. <laughs> but um and also I feel like yeah, with the I'm, current tumult at the uh, Guggenheim I'm sure some uh some dirty laundry is going to uh get aired as it relates to this oh, prize. Totally. Also it's as someone who's been long listed for a Canadian major art prize um I just think it's like we just need to stop these prizes. I don't think they're i don't know appropriate in 2020 i think yeah this all or nothing mentality or especially well i guess the hugo prize a hugo boss prize has just a slightly bit more credibility but some of these prizes are like there's no you know serendipity or sort of uh, emerging people out of anonymity um quality to them it's just like another kind of step in the inertia that's propelled by yeah, by yeah, the exactly. dealers and your gallery and yeah. like are you really if you look yeah you're really telling me that like nicole eisenman needs another like fifty thousand dollar prize for like something exactly and if you look at the artists who are nominated it's like they all work with big galleries and already have you know so much going on and that doesn't mean that they're you know any stronger of an artist than the people that don't have those things on their CV. Right. So I am a little bit surprised that Paul Sepuya hasn't been nominated in light of his like recent work with the Guggenheim. He's a name I would love to see on a finalists uh, yeah, list and he's a great someone artist. who should really win it because he's just a terrific artist. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, something that's happened last year that's been great is uh, you know, some of these prizes have instead just been distributed to many nominees, like the the Sobe Art Award in Canada did that. What about the Turner you know, Prize? Well, the Turner Prize actually announced uh, their jury <laughs> today, I believe, and uh, Russell Tovey is one of the jurors. Uh, so oh, if hey, we're hey. talking about uh, this, actually, we have a question that's going to deal with this topic coming up but can i just say i who, thought looking was a great show and should not have a, uh, been terminated after two seasons <laughs> i love that show it was really good but he was definitely not the highlight of that show no offense yeah I, yeah uh i haven't seen it so i can't comment on that but i can comment on other things mm. and Wait, but just I think go, if in, but just going back for a second to was it last year that the Turner Prize uh, finalists all got the uh, prize essentially? 
I believe yeah. so, yeah. And then and then also the the prize the Neue National Gallery does in in Berlin. Uh all the artists decided to share it and they wrote an open letter uh last year about how they didn't want to be pitted against each other. They didn't think that was the spirit of what they do. And I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this whole like turning everything into a reality competition, uh, given everything that's happening in the world on so many planes is just ridiculous. Right. Uh, and um, that ties in with how ridiculous I think it is that given all that, then someone like Russell Tovey is on the Tate prize jury. Like Why? Because he's a wealthy white person who buys art and uh, has a podcast. Just this cult of celebrity. But you know, it is pretty uh, promising to us because if we keep the, keep this up, we might end up on some jury. <laughs> I don't think anyone would want to work with us after uh, 20 episodes of this shit. Yeah, just uh, wait until we get to episode 100. That's when the names get spilled. Oh, yes. We have a <laughs> lot of names. <laughs> All right, next. Uh, Brother of the pod, Bart, asks, when will you have a Seinfeld art episode? Uh, You know, I feel like I I breathe and uh, uh, eat Seinfeld, and so we don't necessarily have to have a Seinfeld art episode. Every word that comes out of my mouth is influenced (laughs) and impacted and impressed by my endless back-to-back watchings of Seinfeld. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but I will say, uh, well, actually, yeah, I'm not much of a Guggenheimer. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Monet, Manet, tippy, 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 day, day. Yeah, exactly. And that, that, uh, that Soho loft episode with the, uh, triangles with Catherine, uh, Kinnear. She's in that episode from, uh, being oh, John God, Malkovich and into the wild. I love her. Oh, I saw oh, her. Sorry. I was uh... sorry. Sorry, I'm mixing up the artists. I, I don't want the fact checkers to get all upset <laughs> at us. There's a whole triangles episode where George gets like he's like some some savings account like uh, uh, is getting released or something like that. So he invests in art, uh, quote unquote. And then there's a different episode with Catherine Kinnear, and she uh, she paints a portrait of Kramer. Obviously, that's ah, a, that's, yeah, that's the a one. Kramer episode. That's iconic. And then, uh, okay, the Kramer painting, the George photograph where he's, you know, taking a boudoir shot. Yeah, and then Kramer then also takes the uh, Christmas card uh, portrait of Elaine where she exposes a nipple unintentionally and then goes on to famously say, for I have seen the nipple in you. (laughs) (laughs) And then later on, years later in uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is connected... Uh, that amazing moment where uh, Larry gifts Susie a portrait of himself. <laughs> Such a good or, sorry, portrait. Sorry, of her. Sorry, of her. Larry gets Susie a portrait of Susie. <laughs> oh, and doesn't Richard have an art exhibition of his paintings at some point? He like dabbles in art and everybody shows up to oh, his God, art opening that. and Larry straight up tells him he's a shitty artist. <laughs> you know we need more honesty like that in the art world yeah of course there's only (laughs) sycophants and uh yes sayers there's no criticality anymore even the art critics not critics anymore they're just reviewers yes exactly and i think that ties in really well with our next question from garrett which is who is relevant oh god 
I think instead of answering who is relevant, <laughs> let's ask what is relevance and is relevance relevant at all, which I would answer to that no. And I think we should aggressively push away from seeking out relevance and trying to anoint the next relevant, most relevant artist. It's, I think it, it, it yeah. rots uh, the whole field. Yeah. When I read this question, I just immediately thought uh, everyone is relevant and no one is relevant. Because I think uh, you have to be a bit skeptical if someone is being floated about as, you know, the thing of the moment yeah. or super relevant or on every, I don't know, magazine or what have you. Uh, and I mean, my, my longstanding complaint over the years was that in, in this field, you're sort of insignificant until someone deems you significant and so there's just so much machinations behind the like who gets to be relevant and deciding on what's relevant what's what's actual it's just i would just be a little suspect of being called relevant at any given moment especially in light of you know history just needs to run its course to be able to reflect back on 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 its um on its course and deem essentially in retrospect what was actually relevant instead of trying to like you know aggressively capture the moment and decide what is the best depictor of what is going on at this moment yeah and i think uh i speak from a place of experience in 2015 i was on uh what was that stupid website called uh where they like ranked artists is that the trivia where you're uh placed next to christo <laughs> as a famous bulgarian <laughs> artist <laughs> <laughs> uh that is my most liked instagram post now yeah. is me appearing on like a data mining uh <laughs> trivia page called worldwide trivia is that a ca com. cambridge analytica survey <laughs> uh, are you a pawn in the uh election interference in the states <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna link to that on the instagram thoughts on art that's thoughts with a zero um <laughs> Uh, no, I was on one of those lists and it's like, once you appear on that stupid list, uh, art rank or whatever, and that's when people come out of the woodwork and, you know, want something or want to help you or this or that. And then the moment when you're like not hot, you know, two minutes later, they like don't reply to your email. Right. And it's just like, everyone's out for themselves and is just, uh, shady. All right. I mean, uh, hold on again. I think it just ties ties yeah. back to the general laziness uh, that is just so endemic in the art world. Like at the end of the day, collectors, dealers, you know, especially institutional curators, in my opinions, are just lazy. So like, it's always someone that has to give you the the initial leg up, which is impossible to get in the first place. But once you do get the leg up, there's just such a like tsunami uh, of attention, and essentially everyone like. Um, it just rests on the laurels of somebody else having done the work already. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, like this uh, biennial I was just a part of that opened on the weekend, what I thought was amazing about it was there were so many artists I discovered and new things I saw that I haven't seen before. Uh, it was mostly Polish artists, but there were a few international artists as well. And most of them I didn't know, which was amazing. Whereas remember when you and I were in Warsaw uh, two summers ago? Mm -hmm. And we saw a nameless show and it was just all kind of like market bait, uh, figurative art. 
Wait, are you, know, you ta- are a, you talking about the contemporary? Uh, uh, yeah, it was like a the female. It was a contemporary yeah. female artists. Yeah, which we fully support female artists, but uh, there was very little discovery. It was like, oh, who are like the hot of the moment artists that collectors would love? Yeah, even though this is an institution. I mean, honestly, I know there was, I know I'm a white male, but I still it it is beyond me why anyone would want to be a you know a part of a show that umbrella terms them into like a group just completely er- yeah, eradicating I mean, it, it your, like a, your no it does seem like an, a, a a data uh exhibition concept yeah. uh okay so next should we tackle this mm-hmm. uh this controversial question what's your take on racial representation in galleries asked by uh krista8675 friend of the pod krista hewn d'angelo who we love who will be on the podcast in a future future episode? Uh, I mean, this is—it's difficult for us to discuss this as white men. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, uh, obviously, like the—it's a minefield mass inequality. Yeah, it's a minefield. But there's mass inequality in our society. The art world should better represent uh, the diversity of society. But uh, I feel like there are certain galleries that are taking advantage of that and not being true to actually creating more equality. Uh, Just go to the Cancel Art Galleries Instagram uh, and look at the posts about a certain gallery that, uh, you know, shows black artists, but then says, well, we can't have too many black artists. We don't want this to be a ghetto gallery. Um, I mean, it's more so than that. I feel like racial representations, uh, representation in galleries in 2020 has, uh, well, I was lamenting this to you the other day. I feel like we just live in an era of kitsch where there's not a lot of criticality in the work and especially racial representations in gallery. It's, it just boils down to like figuration of either the, the black body or just, uh, these innocuous black, uh, black figures just you know sitting in a room or doing this or that there's just nothing offensive about it nothing thought-provoking it might as well belong in the you know sunday times like as an illustration in one of the pieces and i don't understand why it has to be so because you have these like mavericks black mavericks in the arts such as uh, Sam Gillum or um, uh, Charles Whitten. Am I getting the name right? Maybe, yeah. Um, I just don't understand why it has to be so straightforward nowadays. It feels like it's just aggressively overpalatable and caters to, I guess, like a very low common denominator in the market. Yeah, of like a, of a rich white collector. Mm-hmm. It's like things that are non-threatening. It's for a white collector to feel good about themselves that they... Bought the work of a black artist, but you know when it's sorry, Jack Whitten. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, uh, you know, there's this kind of base structural issue of inequality that's not being addressed. So, you know, for example, the collector base or students going to art school. Uh, you know, there are people that are trying to make an effort with that, but it's not you know, the white gallerists doing that or white institutions or the 
white staff members there. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'm saying what I'm saying is I just don't understand why there's such a uh, such a big moment for like the vanilla vanilla taste making of the likes of like you know Amy Sherald and these really like inoffensive inoffensive portraiture. But yeah. again, this is well. No, I think yeah. again, it's the the market dictating that because nobody wants to be confronted or challenged with something that uh, you know you actually have to think about or emotionally address. Uh, yeah, but like you, you know, to that cl- yeah, but, but like you take Sam Gilliam for example, uh, uh, American painter, African American who uh, makes abstract work and has a very sort of big uh, moment in the market. Now there is definitely. Like, if you educate the market well enough, the market will just get on that trend. And obviously, there's a ship that's, you know, being steered towards a very specific figurative moment right now, which I, maybe a a more sophisticated or intellectual mind would be able to tell me why there's such a uh, high demand now for the very inoffensive arts. Yeah. Well, I think it's just that reaction to the zombie abstraction moment of, like, 2012 to 2015 or what have you uh that you know it's like oh god all this shitty abstraction well now we need to focus on portraiture and the body and i think that you know like uh stefan simkovitz type of dealer definitely was engaging with certain work and then when people see that's going well then everyone wants to have their version of it Mm -hmm. uh so the same is happening with like you know, gay figuration. It's like Lou Fertino popped off and now suddenly there's every other dealer has some sort of similar gay or queer artist making similar work. Again, it's just laziness, just fl- flooding the yeah, field yeah, exactly. constantly so the rising tide like lifts the uh, the lesser boats. Yeah. So, yeah. Um and I will just let's maybe give a shout out to amazing friend of the pod and amazing artist Candice Williams, who makes not just beautiful, thought provoking collages, but has her own uh, um, publication and intellectual output called Cassandra. Uh, and it's just like uh, ceaselessly engaging in the most like brutally intellectual challenges, trying to expand people's minds about issues that are actually you know, relevant to the black experience and the current moment we're living in in the States. Uh, I also think Paul Sepuya's work is beyond unique and amazing. And I think those two are doing an actual great service to the moment we're living in rather than other artists who make more palatable work that just sells very well and hangs very well. And people can just, uh, you know, say that they bought a great investment commodity piece and also, you know, um, wave the banner of like, I contributed to equality and equity yeah well speaking of of candace uh last year when i was uh in la during freeze la uh jordan and i we went to a panel that was candace devon troy strother uh and ebony haynes and it was an amazing conversation by the three of them and this is a topic that came up that you know when there's work that's dealing with you know for example black traumas and the gallery only has white collectors like how do you mediate that entire thing right and you know and uh and it is kind of i mean you know like uh think of all the wealth criminals white wealth criminals that own like kara walker works right 
blown up on their wall that are just like violent scenes of rape mm-hmm. and you know lynching like right it's kind of fucked up when you think about it so i mean let me, i think there's just like let me let me the representation issue has to kind of go through the whole hierarchy right let me let me tell you a little story <laughs> a little sales falling through story that's uh that's riddled in politics so when i had my solo show downtown last year uh the the title of the show was Lamentations, and I did work that was sort of uh, appropriating uh, excerpts from the Book of Lamentations that tells the story of the desolation of Jerusalem, like destruction of the temple, and like historical infighting in in Judaism. And we had a uh, couple collector uh, Jews in their forties, and they came to see the show a couple of times. They really loved three paintings, and were uh, we're going to buy them. And then we gave another tour of the show to the woman. And then last minute after they had confirmed the sale, the husband waltzes in and says, actually, I don't want any negative mentioning or connotation of Jerusalem hanging as a painting in my boy's bedroom in the Pied-a-Terre in Tel Aviv. So he fucking pulled the plug on the sale. And um, that's politics for you. Sounds uh, problematic and messy to me. Yep. Okay, next question. You you pick. Okay, uh, Guillaume Gelo, if I'm pronouncing his handle correctly, is asking: Modernism sucks, and postmodernism sucks. So what's up? Um, I will agree that postmodernism. I, I wouldn't say that they suck. It's just they kind of ran their course. I feel like postmodernism hasn't aged very gracefully as opposed to modernism. Um, Just going back to what I said before about relevance, like I just think you need to let history run its course rather than trying to like bottle significance and importance and deem what is right and what is wrong as things are happening. You just got to let sort of perspective kind of kick in. And I think now looking back at the like stalwarts of postmodernism, I will say that it hasn't held up very well. I'm just a sucker for the approaches of modernism, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. I mean, uh, what I appreciate of postmodernism is the meta narrative, <laughs> the palimpsest. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, on a purely aesthetic level, uh, yeah, I mean, that era like 70s to uh what's the death of postmodernism like 9-11 it's been dead to me uh, for a long time <laughs> there are some uh questionable aesthetic concepts yeah. of postmodernity. um uh i think uh even on a very kind of like surface pop level something like madonna would do uh you know like taking on personas and true you know thematics and you know there was some irony in certain things like that just doesn't fly anymore. Right. You it's uh we're we're in this like post postmodernist era uh that's stripped away I think kind of the uh good aspects of it that there isn't, you know, like one master narrative and instead it's just like the shitty watered down version. But we're also getting like shitty uh neo modernism in kind of various creative fields. Like just look at architecture. Right. I mean, I think a significant difference between the modernism and postmodernism is that postmodernism was sort of aiming to universalize the personal experience. In postmodernism, there was like all this garbling of the personal experience. And now I think we're living in a 
like a, an accelerationist point of the individualization of the universal experience. And I personally find a little off-putting to sort of experience art through on a, like aggressively individual terms. What I, what I truly love just going back to the, uh, to the Mexican muralist show at the Whitney or just my general affinity to uh, um, uh, German expressionism, for example, is that there was just such a heavy focus on trying to distill the collective experience rather than, you know, create art that's like me, 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 me. That's my take. Yeah. Also, just uh, read Waiting for Godot if you're oh, yes. over postmodernism. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, One last question. Okay. Two more. Okay. We can do it. Okay. Thoughts on democratization of creating and showing stuff on Instagram and how that affects quality. That's from M.M. Bressler. I am all for it. I think you should just, even regardless of whether you have a gallery representation or other people doing the the um, um, the work for you, I think Instagram is, I'm sorry, it's the place to be. It's been very uh, beneficial to me and I cannot imagine a world without it. Same. I think it's been very beneficial. Uh, it came out in like fall of 2010 or so or that's where it came to my attention that was when i moved to berlin i had moved there that summer and a lot of good things came my way because of instagram like almost everything like i've uh you know sold work through it i've Same. uh connected with curators who i've worked with uh with galleries that represent me now uh it's a visual platform and a visual medium and it's uh, an easy way to learn about new things visually, whereas something like uh, Facebook is very walled off. It's only about your friends and you're not really supposed to be adding strangers or whatever. Uh, and there's a limit on that, too. Uh, Twitter sucks. So you're, <laughs> I don't think you're going to like really, you know, make that much happen yeah. for yourself as an artist on there. And uh, and I also think yeah. one of one of the biggest benefits of Instagram is like if you're a social wallflower like me, it's just been a great uh, a great platform and means to connect with people who I otherwise would have never gotten the chance to talk to, especially not in like openings and stuff like that. If anything, I would like see people at openings and then follow up on social media just because I just don't have that like quality to just immediately connect with people in real life. Yeah. And even on a, yeah, like on a social level, I've made a lot of friends off Instagram, you know, because you have friends of friends that you follow, they follow you. And if they live in another city, eventually it's like, oh, we should meet up and you become friends. Like I've made so many friends in New York that way. Uh, and it's been really nice. And those are friends like in the art world and out of the art world. Uh, so uh, short story, long story short, follow us on Instagram. Shamak, <laughs> what's your handle? Uh, where thoughts on art that's thoughts with a zero um, because they've deplatformed um, thoughts all righty very, right, very last question from Aviva friend of the pod 
uh, it's a bit of a long one. How do you stay motivated creating your own work during the pandemic? It somehow feels harder and even more isolating as exhibitions, events, art fairs, maybe even studio visits are no longer in person or have been canceled. I'm curious, as I'm a writer and solely work alone, I'd very much need some tips on finding more community or creating an atmosphere that feels less isolating. Um, I think you should start to answer this because you've been very good at this uh, this year. I honestly, I'm able to reflect back on like the you know the peak of the uh, of the outbreak here in New York, so March, April, May. And um, I was essentially working out of my temporary studio that was afforded to me by a friend of the pod, very generous artist, Jean-Baptiste Bernadette. Um, I was working out of that studio every day, purely out of a reflex to survive mentally. I'm realizing it now. Like I just see a lot of like exhibitions now starting to pop up with just like the tagline or the banner of like, pandemic work made during pandemic and it just oftentimes feel feels like just like a way to sell the work like i'm just uh i just see that there's a new um uh, a new oscar murillo show that's coming up in uh in paris and it's like under the banner of like pandemic art but it just looks exactly <laughs> like the rest of his work um, yeah, it is not influenced by the pandemic. We can clearly see. Yeah, exactly. And so how do you stay motivated creating your, your own work during the pandemic? Uh, I will refer to that, the myriad articles that have been popping off uh, in the previous weeks that say it's okay to not be okay or not feel okay during exactly. the pandemic. And this American-centric mentality of powering through is just categorically should be rejected. Uh, if you're not mo motivated to create during the pandemic... It's fucking fine because there's a global pandemic. <laughs> you shouldn't do anything. I do understand exactly. the sentiment, though. Uh, and life is, you know, difficult as is as a uh, writer, which you know, it's a it's a very uh, uh, it's a very lonely uh, profession. Um, yeah, what's your take on it, Shemek? Uh I completely agree with that. I think you know it's completely fine to not do anything because it is a global pandemic. So that's basically what I was doing for the first few months. Uh, and I was completely unmotivated. It, you know, it seemed, seemed like a fool's errand to be, you know, slaving away in my studio. But when there were things that came up where it's like, oh, God, I have like a month to finish this thing, some deadline or something, which, you know, there weren't that many because of the global pandemic. I did my work. Um but I think if you have, as a writer, and I know Aviva, you know, works in film, I think maybe having a work buddy, as cheesy as that sounds, but just somebody to check in with that you're, you know, that enforces deadlines and having kind of realistic uh, kind of goalposts you have to meet. So if if you're wanting to write a feature film in the next six months, uh, maybe, you know, every two weeks you check in with that friend and they just kind of keep you on top of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, That's a good advice. Aviva, I would be happy to do that. Yes. I'm good at cracking the whip at other people and not <laughs> myself. <laughs> 
Amazing. Well, I think this sums it up. Good questions. Yeah, it sums it up. They were very good. We're going to do this again soon. And um, just like they say on that SNL NPR skit, good times. Good times. Good times. Good, good times. <laughs> uh, and Amir, is there anything you're excited for this coming week? Uh, I'm uh, having a upper endoscopy in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so i'm excited for the partial anesthesia uh i'm not allowed to operate operate at heavy machinery you know, afterwards this, so this sounds like bruce jenner's uh colonoscopy on season three of keeping up with the kardashians yeah i'm just getting my uh deviated septum fixed don't tell anyone <laughs> it's funny because when i went to the doctor was the first question he asked me was what my uh ethnic uh, background is which <laughs> was uh, it was just the easiest telltale sign for him <laughs> he almost could diagnose was, me on the spot <laughs> i was actually gonna ask you like how he um came about that you're ashkenazi jewish like it's like okay his name's amir guberstein but i don't want to full out say it. i mean the doctor he's like in his uh early 70s the office is just straight out of like a trump tower like catalog <laughs> beautiful office but he's like a heavy set uh, armenian doctor uh and i think he could figure it out for himself what i was <laughs> yeah all righty it was nice chatting with you Pshamek. so nice chatting with you uh i guess uh see you next time Trusikovsky. <laughs> juicy bye bye <laughs>